This is Fantastic Books and How to Read Them. The fantasy book review podcast for fantasy fanatics, book nerds, and lovers of lore and stories. Covering some of the most beloved fantasy series, as well as brand new novels. With your hosts, Sam and Anna Furman. Let's see what we're reading this week. Welcome back, fantastic listeners. It's a brand new year, and we are so excited to be debuting coverage on Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson. Yes, as we had made an announcement on our social media, we are not going to be covering Dragons of Autumn Twilight for Season 3, but instead have pivoted to do the Mistborn. I'm not sure if we're going to do the full trilogy, but we are definitely covering the first book of Mistborn right now, which is called either Mistborn or The Final Empire, depending on which version you have. The reason we're doing this is because we started reading this book around the holidays. I picked it up and was reading it to myself and a couple of chapters in was like, this book is so good. This book is so good. Sam, you have to read it. And finally, he was like, okay, go back and start from the beginning. We got to read together. So at the time of recording this, we are currently up through chapter 21 of Mistborn. We have not finished the book yet, but we really wanted to cover it on the podcast, so we're somewhere between our normal position of having read everything and having read nothing by reading ahead a little bit. Right. What I was hoping to do with this series, and I'm not even sure we will, initially I had the idea of reading it a section at a time and making predictions as we went along, and I think we can do that in some regard. However, personally, I've been enjoying this book so much that it's hard to wait to uh, just only read a few chapters at a time. I'm just so engrossed in it. I love the writing style. It just is playful and engaging and intense at times, and I really love the characters. I think Brandon Sanderson does a really good job with action, but I think he really shines with his complexity and subtleness with conversations between characters. I think he really establishes great mood and developing relationships with dialogue. Ooh, I think his action is my favorite part so far, which is a little bit different from Name of the Wind, mm. which are particularly unactiony fantasy books. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a very plot-based action story so far, and I've really been enjoying it. And I think one thing that was fun about the first two seasons of the show was that we had read and reread and reread the Kingkiller Chronicles, we could pick them apart and find all these tiny details. So we won't quite be able to do that with this book yet, but I think it's been really fun to be able to make predictions. And we are going to be able to pull on the stuff that we have read up through so far. So as we go along through the episodes of the podcast, obviously, we will have read more and more of the book because we're reading on our own time. So it shouldn't be too long before we finish the first book and we can talk about the entirety of the first book in regards to which chapters we're covering on the podcast, and I'm assuming we're going to continue to read the trilogy on our own as well, Sam. Yeah, definitely. Okay, perfect. <laughs> Be odd to read the first book and then never finish. No, no, no. If there's one thing I'm adamant on, even if I don't care for a book, I will finish it. You and I are in very different camps on that. I will not finish a book if I don't like it, because there are so many good things to read, so I don't have time to waste on books I don't like. I know. 
I'll give the book the benefit of the doubt because even if I'm not enjoying certain parts or whatever, I it's almost like I hold on for hope. Oh, there's a silver lining or maybe I didn't like the writing style, but maybe I liked the story. In that regard, I try and complete what I start. Well, I'll give you credit for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not always rewarded with this dedication. Sometimes just a curse and sometimes I just read something and I'm like, ugh, never again, but... Well, it's very we all, rare. We all have a burden to bear. <laughs> yes. Since we're moving into a full season and not a mini series, I just wanted to remind our listeners that we're going to be going back to the bi-weekly episodes, so they will be coming out every other Thursday. It'll give us a little bit more time to get really into depth with the season-long book. And then the other announcement that I have, which is totally unrelated to this podcast, is that I have a new podcast <laughs> called From A to B Side, and it's a billboard album review podcast so i listen to top charting music albums through the years and give them reviews and all my musical opinions which are certainly not professional opinions but you can find that right now on spotify and google podcasts and i'm currently working on getting it on apple podcasts slash itunes so you can find me there as well without a further ado let's dive in to the wonderful world of Mistborn. The way this book starts was not what I was expecting. You know, the world is painted as this post-apocalyptic, downcast world that just seems so sad and destroyed almost. I think one thing that really gave me an inclination as to what the book was about is the back of the book says, Once a hero rose to save the world, he failed. For a thousand years since, the world has been a wasteland of ash and mist ruled by the immortal emperor known as the Lord Ruler. So I think that's a really awesome concept that, you know, we have this idea of a, a hero rising up in fantasy so often and vanquishing evil, but I think it's so creative that this world is set where that big battle has already happened. It would be like Frodo not destroying the ring and then what the world would look like a thousand years later. That's something that's pretty unusual, and obviously we're getting, you know, a hero's arc in this current trilogy. But to set the world in this wasteland that's got mists and ash and it's very unfertile. The plants are sort of dying. The people are all downtrodden. I really like it. It's creative. Yeah. And we get a glimpse into somewhat of the social hierarchy taking place where there's a plantation and hundreds, thousands of workers known as the Ska. And they are just peasants. They've been essentially slaves for thousands of years through generations. They just live a terrible life of manual labor. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but when I start a book, I never know really what to pay attention to. So I try to remember in the prologue, especially like every character's name and every, every little detail. So here in the opening scene in the prologue, we have this character, Lord Tresting. So I was like really focused on him at first. And by the end of the prologue, Lord Tresting is dead. So yeah. <laughs> it was not helpful for me to do that at all, but it sets a really good world building moment where Lord Tresting is having someone called an obligator come to inspect his plantation. So the obligator we've inferred is a member of the government and they are indicated by these face and eye tattoos that they have that reach like around their eyes and all the way up to their eyebrows. It reminds me of like a mask. Ooh, okay. I like that. Kind of like a Zorro mask, but like a doily. 
obviously way cooler, but... Yeah, definitely cooler. I don't know when they get them. I don't know what they signify. So far, we've I think, learned that, like, the bigger the tattoo, the more important the person. Yeah, but, like, like, the higher the rank. We don't know much more about these obligators yet. They go to some sort of school, and then they have acolytes that come down. The The government here is sort of, like, quasi-religious, so it's it's a blend of religious-slash-government figures, these obligators are. And then they also eventually work with these people slash things called steel inquisitors that we learn about later and oh and those are those terrifyingly are <laughs> awesome <laughs> they're so scary so and then we have the lord ruler who is essentially the god of this land we have his obligators and steel inquisitors and the nobility and that's as far as what we know of the hierarchy of this world and what we do know about the nobility is that since you and i have read ahead from where we are the nobility are the descendants of the people who supported the Lord Ruler during that initial like battle a thousand years ago. The Ska, or the peasants, are essentially everyone else, so no one, the people who didn't support him. And they are just eternally punished for that. Yeah, so it's really dark. Here on Trusting's Plantation, they work as plantation laborers. They're in the fields and the farms, but they also work in like mills and factories, and they just get the lowest of the low of everything. They are constantly covered in ash and dirt, so they're absolutely filthy all the time. They live in, like, hovels and huts. They don't have a lot of food. I love that the world is described as constantly raining ash, and that the sun, when it shines through, is, like, a ruddy red. Yeah. It's, it's so threatening and abysmal and sad. Like, I always imagined when it was like, oh, it's raining ash, and the sun would poke through, it would be, like, silvery wisps of, like, white, and no. No, like, red is dangerous. <laughs> yeah. It just makes it so eerie and unnatural. And I love that plants and things have such a hard time growing. Which makes life even harder for the ska. Yeah, there's a, a sentence in the first page where it says, Despite the ashfall, the sun was bright this day, shining a brilliant crimson red behind the smoky blackness of the upper sky. So everything just looks like dirty and disgusting and industrial almost, even though yeah. it's not. I think it paints a really good picture of the anguish of this world. For sure. So in the prologue, Trusting is having this obligator come and inspect his plantation because there have been rumors going around that Trusting messes around with his ska women. The obligator's there kind of to check that out, but also to, you know, like do a routine check or whatever. Everything goes well. Trusting passes the inspection. But at the very last minute, as the obligator's standing there, this ska person looks up and defiantly stares right at Trusting. And Trusting just, like, doesn't even think of ska as people, essentially. So he's like, none of them have ever done that to me. And it really unnerves him. And he has to kind of catch himself before the obligator realizes that he's had this startling moment. And then when Trusting looks back, this person is gone. And one thing I didn't realize at the time, but that's probably... It's Kelsier. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We get the picture, the perspective from the noble people, and then the prologue shifts so that we are following the story of the Ska and Kelsier. We get introduced to Kelsier thinking of the times before the Lord Ruler, a time where the sky hadn't been filled with ash and smoke, and apparently plants used to thrive. And it seems that Kelsier will be the main protagonist hoping to invoke change. We do find out later, too, that Kelsier's 
big motivating factor in his life is this idea of the world before the Lord Ruler, like seeing plants and seeing flowers and seeing the world green. It's introduced so early that I kind of forgot about it, but he brings it up later in a conversation with Vin, who we meet in the first chapter. It's just a really important thing to remember about him. But he starts picking his way through heaps of ash. You know, there's just piles of ash everywhere in this world. I love that it builds almost like snowdrifts. Yeah, it's just like such a hassle for everyone. He's walking through these nighttime mists and he comes into a ska hovel, which has a lot of people in it. You know, they're all packed in. They're making a very sad stew for the evening. A gruel. And he comes in and people are definitely startled because A, you don't see travelers. Nobody leaves their homes at night. And yeah, that's the thing is like everyone's afraid of the mist. And at the time I had no idea why. I was like, are there monsters out there? Is it poisonous? Is it just scary? Like, what's with the mist? It's definitely a combination of all three of like superstition, fear of the unknown. And they're worried about things called mist rates, which actually exist. I was not expecting there to be actual creatures in the mist, but yes. there are. Oh, it adds such a physical fear to an intangible object. I love it. Right, because like mist is scary, obviously, because you can't see if you go out into it and they live in a world that's so dark, but... Just knowing that there's, like, things lurking in it, like, <sighs> Unnerving. No, thank you. So, again, I tried to keep track of all the characters in this opening prologue. Not particularly important in the long run. But Kelsier comes in, and I think he just has a joviality about him that Ska do not have. You know, he smiles, and people keep noticing that. They, it unnerves them. Like, he's just too happy. And Ska are just not happy people. They live terrible lives. Yeah, I feel like Kelsier is the perfect happy-go-lucky swashbuckling adventure hero personality. I've but I been, love that it's a front. I've been picturing Wesley from The Princess Bride mm. very much in my mental image of Kelsier. Yeah, it's definitely like a combination of that and a couple other things, but he just has this infectious positivity and gravitas. It's hard to describe. I don't think it's really a front. No, I it's it, in a way, though, I feel like he wears it like a mask for what his true intentions are and his like hatred towards the nobility and the Lord Ruler, though. Oh, yes, I agree. I agree. Like he's not brooding in the way like a, you know, a Batman antihero would be or. Anything no, like I that. think he uses his positivity as like a defense mechanism. Like, you know, when you're really nervous, so you laugh. Yeah. Like his life is so sad that the only thing he can do is like smile mm -hmm. so i think that's kind of how it works yeah. for him it definitely creates a very unique personality type and it also helps him build his crew and get followers like he's got a lot of charisma that he can use to sway people which is really powerful yeah i definitely rolled a natural 20 in charisma <laughs> yes oh but he's so smart so he comes in and people are very suspicious of him people are talking about like oh if you've gone out into the mist you lose your soul and and they're sort of wondering if kelsey or crazy because he's been out in the mists and like maybe he's lost who he is or lost his mind essentially but he he definitely inspires these ska because they're cooking a meal and they're like we can't feed you and not being very nice and helpful and he's like okay fine well i brought all my own food and unpacks a bag that's got like cheese and bread and fruit and pretty basic things but things that are far more delicious and amazing than these ska have had ever <laughs> essentially because where they're located within this world, obviously, it's so infertile. 
that to see such freshness in their food, it's like overwhelming. Exactly. He also says like, oh, well, I'll need help. I'll need help finishing this all up that if you guys are nervous about getting caught with it, like we can't leave any evidence. And he also tantalizingly says like, oh, well, you guys wouldn't want me to leave before I share the news. He's really good at getting people's interest and keeping them intrigued. And then also putting his money where his mouth is, you know, he's, he does share his food and it's better food than they've ever had. And he's got news, quote unquote, from the outside world, which is that there's places in the world where ska aren't treated horribly. So he's clearly trying to inspire a better life for these people. He wants to show them that they don't have to be downtrodden, but they've just been beaten down for generations at this point that they don't see the world ever changing. Something that you and I also didn't notice when we were first reading the prologue is that Kelsier's talking about the lords in the West that treat their Scott nicely. And he says, oh, one man, Lord Renew, has even ordered his taskmasters to stop unauthorized beatings. Oh, wow. And Lord Renew is yeah, yeah a major player later on down the line. Nice build up there. Prologues are so good to go back and reread periodically as you go through the book because you pick up on so many things. Authors who write good prologues, I think, pepper in so much information in, like, these tiny little bits and blips. And it's not the prologue in Name of the Wind, but, like, that time before he starts telling his story, you hear mentions of so many little things that you don't know what's going on. You just consider it world building or chatter or whatever. And then when you go back, you're like, oh, wow, I didn't even pick up on that the first time. So as Kelsey is talking with these ska people, one of them named Menace glances down at Kelsier's hands and sees all the scars around his hands and wrists and realizes that been to Hatson. Right, so Menace says that he's only ever seen those scars on one other person who got sent to this place, the pits of Hatson, because he'd been talking about rebellion. So Menace is definitely skeptical of Kelsier. He says things like, why bother to fight for change? Like, if, if you end up just getting sent to Hatson and you die there, what's the point? And Kelsier, again, being so infectious, is like, well, you know, you are fighting this fight. You're just losing right now. Whereas Menace is clearly resigned to it. So there's two different ways of looking at the world at this point. But at this point, they are interrupted by a scream from outside. And it's it's a young girl's scream. Kelsier starts to use the magic of the world, which is the first time we're introduced to it. And it says that he has allomantic powers burning within him which i absolutely love this magic class system do you want to talk about it yes so there are a total of 12 metals that allomancers and mistborns can burn within their body to augment their internal and external abilities and there's eight main ones i think there's only 11 metals i think so so there's eight main metals that I looked in the back of the book in the appendix to see what these were all about, but the eight metals are... We have iron, steel, tin, pewter, zinc, brass, copper, and bronze. And then we learn eventually about the tenth metal called atium, and Kelsier talks about a mysterious eleventh metal. I still don't know what the ninth metal is. We still haven't heard about it. No. Twenty-something chapters into the book. One cool thing about these metals are that The ratios have to be created right for certain ones, and they all have to be consumed and burned around a similar time frame. Otherwise, you can't just let metal sit in your system. 
Yep, yeah, so they have to eat the metals. And then anyone who has these allomantic powers who are called allomancers or mistborn or mistings, depending on, like, which powers you have, you eat the metals and then you can, like, burn their powers up inside of you as, like, a source of your magic. And each one, each metal does a different thing. Yes. Iron allows you to pull on nearby metals and kind of bring you to it. We have steel, which allows you to push on nearby metals. We have tin, and it enhances senses. Which is what Kelsier starts burning in this moment. So he can hear and see what's going on around him. We have pewter, which enhances physical abilities. Zinc, which you can use to uh, riot emotions. Mm -hmm. Brass, which soothes emotions. So those two are opposites but can also work in tandem like the way iron and steel are yep and then copper which hides the use of allomancy and then bronze reveals the use of allomancy and then each type of person who can use these has a different name so the people that can burn iron are called lurchers people who burn steel are called coin shots people who burn tin are called tin eyes people who burn pewter are called pewter arms or thugs people who burn zinc are rioters People who burn brass are soothers, people who burn copper are smokers, and people who burn bronze are seekers. One thing I'm really appreciating about Brandon Sanderson's magic building with this, a lot of the insignias in the book that have opposite metals that cause opposite reactions, the insignias are inverted from one another. Oh, I hadn't even noticed that. That is really cool. Just really nice attention to detail that I appreciate. I do like it. So jumping back to the story, um, a girl is screaming and crying, and a mother is also upset, and the Ska already know what's happening. Essentially, a young pretty girl is being taken away by from her mother to the Lord's Manor, where he can use her as his plaything, which is just terrible. Which is what the obligator was referring to, and Menace... One of the Ska says, oh, you know, Lord Tresting actually is pretty law-abiding. He has the girls killed after a few weeks. It's gross. Yeah. It's upsetting. We get a little aside in this moment, too. It says, like, that's Lord Ruler's command. He can't have half-breed children running around. Children who might possess powers that Ska weren't even supposed to know existed. So I hadn't realized this at the time, but technically this allomancy power is supposed to be exclusive to the nobility. It is passed down genetically as like an inherited power. Not all nobility have it, but some do. And you're supposed to keep it secret if you do have one of the powers, because people obviously don't want to know if you're using your powers on them. So Scott aren't supposed to have these powers, and they're really not supposed to know that they exist at all. Classic dramatic Kelsier gets up and strides off into the mists. And I love this where Menace says apprehensively, remember what I said about wasting energy. You'll never raise that rebellion of yours if you get yourself killed tonight. Where Kelsier replies, I'm not here to lead a rebellion among you, Goodman Menace. I just want to stir a little bit of trouble. And he exits into the mist saying, new days are coming. Survive a little longer and you just might see what's happening in the final empire. He's good at creating a scene. He's yeah. like Kavoth in this way. Mm-hmm. He's got the theatrics down. Oh, for sure. So the following morning, we see the story from Menace's perspective. He wakes up and he can tell that something is different. People are 
kind of rummaging around. They're not going to work. People are smelling smoke in the air, so they're not sure what's going on. And they've gathered towards somebody. He can't see who. And so he, he ends up going over there. The girl who had been taken the night before by Lord Trusting is there, and nobody understands how she's there. Like, they thought that... Lord Trusting had either taken her or at this point, like, she should have been gotten by whatever's in the mists. Then people bring her out into the sunshine to prove that she's not a mystery. So this is their, like, method of testing. And the Ska are very startled and excited, but Menace is also concerned because no one is supposed to cross the nobility. And at this point, he's realizing that something is going on so yeah he, something's horribly wrong right like, where is the nobility what is where are the guards what is happening right and so he asks the girl and she says someone came and saved her a man with scars on his hands and arms and that man killed everybody in the manor yeah like everybody's gone the manor's burnt down and destroyed everyone's just like in awe like how could one person do all this right so they they walk over and they see the mansion, the manor burned down to the ground. Menace takes charge, and I love that he's like, okay, we can either stay here and get killed, or we can try to escape somewhere, because it looks like we've done this. And he's silently cursing Kelsier, which Kelsier wanted to, you know, shake things up for these people. But the choice has kind of been made for them. They need to flee, and... They decide to go to these caves that are a fairly well-known place where, like, the Ska Rebellion is outfitted, and lives quote-unquote but the sky is pretty weak so it's never been quelched is that a word yeah <laughs> by the lord ruler so menace knows of these caves he says okay we're gonna go there people are terrified because they have to sleep in the mists and be out in the mists to do this but if they stay they're going to be killed by the lord ruler anyway and that sets the scene for the story itself, that's the whole prologue. Yeah, and it's crazy where in just such a little bit of time, a lot gets established. So much. We meet so many characters. We learn about the structure of the world with the Lord Ruler and the nobility and the Alamancers. We learn the Ska and the Ska Rebellion and how those are all fitting together. And we meet Kelsier, our main hero. I for sure thought Menace is going to come back in the story because... Some of the other characters we've met are now dead, uh, like Lord Trusting, but so far, you and I have not yet met Menace again in the book. Nope, not yet. But who knows, maybe with the Ska Rebellion, Kelsier may run into him in the future. Part 1. Survivor of Hathson. One thing I'd like to comment on is, again, we get these Alamantic insignias on the chapter cover title, and we have Soothing... Riding and the one that discovers uh, an Alamancer. Reveals. Yes, reveals. And that kind of foreshadows some of the situations that happen in this section. So I thought that was really clever. I didn't notice that the first time, but seeing it now. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on the part pages. So chapter one. Every chapter in this book starts with a little blurb in italics. I upon reading this, had no idea whose these were. I thought it could either be Kelsier's, someone we hadn't met yet, the hero from the back of the book, like the description. I think the hero was my like top guess. And they're slightly cryptic. We get more and more answers about them as they go on. I now, up to the point we're in, think that they are 
or we know pretty much that they're from this book that was written by the man who became the Lord Ruler. I still don't know if that man was supposed to be the hero or not, though. Yeah, that part we don't know. And that's it's been like, the did most he confusing fail? thing. And by default, it's like, if I couldn't win them over, I'm going to rule over them. Like, it's really hard to figure out what caused the decline or his downfall to becoming what he is now. Yeah, so the blurbs are pretty interesting, and we if we string them all together, we get like a pretty good picture of this person who is really apprehensive about their situation. They keep referencing like prophecies and questioning whether or not people have the right man. There's blurbs about being unsure of themselves, but thinking they have good principles or good morals. And if this is the person who becomes the Lord Ruler, who's created this horrific world of oppression... I don't think they have good morals at all, so I still don't know how this has come to be. Yeah, it's tough because it's like with great power, you know, great responsibility, or he's become corrupted somehow. Right, so hopefully we get more answers about that as we go on. But in chapter one, we meet our other main character, a girl named Vin. And this chapter opens with the sentence, Ash fell from the sky, which is the exact same way the prologue opened so it's just reiterating again how crummy this world is vin is a thief she sits up on this windowsill kind of overlooking this city called luthadel which we find out is the capital of the lord ruler's empire and it's like the the biggest city in the area and when she is up here alone she's thinking about like how much she likes to be by herself She thinks about, like, when you're alone, nobody can betray you. It immediately references the fact that, like, she learned that from her brother, who in the end also betrayed her, her brother Reen. I really think he's going to come back into the story at some point. He has to. Because he's not dead. He's just left her. Right. He betrayed her and left her. So I think we're going to for sure meet him again. As Vin's sitting there, this character named Ulef comes and asks Vin to go downstairs because the job's almost ready and Cayman is mad. So Cayman is the leader of their it's like a pack of gang. thieves. Yeah. Vin has to go with him. She works as a thief. She's worked as a thief her whole life. She doesn't love it, obviously, but her options are like becoming a whore, working in the forges or the textile mills or death, essentially. Like there's not options for women in this world. No. So because Vin works in this thieving gang... She, again, is at the beck and call to this man, Cayman, who is violent and angry and just a terrible person and treats her poorly. Mm-hmm. So Cayman says, there you are. Where have you been? This job is very important. It's worth thousands of boxings, which is the money in this world. So we don't yet know what the job is. And as Cayman is taking his anger out on Vin. It says she uses up a bit of her luck on him, and luck is capitalized. So this is Vin's power, quote-unquote. We come to learn that she's an allomancer. She doesn't yet know it herself. She has this ability to use luck, what she's calling luck, to sway people's emotions. So in this moment, she uses it to turn Cayman's anger away from her. But she didn't want to use it up too much because she needs the rest for the job. That's her role on the crew. Cayman just sees her as a bit of a good luck charm. She doesn't really know what she is and she's never voiced her powers to anyone yet. Cayman just brings her along because he knows things go better when Vin is around. So the plan that they have is that they have made up a room in a hotel to look 
like it's being inhabited by a lord who came and will be playing this creature, creature, <laughs> <laughs> this character, Lord Jedoe. And Jedoe is playing this idea that his family's fallen on hard times and he's come to get some government contracts. And it's like the last option for him and his family to to save face and save their reputation and save their money. Cayman and everyone else in his crew have teamed up with another crew to create this job. So the leader of the other crew is called Theron, and he has set up this this grift essentially for like several years now. So the idea of their plan is that they're going to get a government contract to run canal boats. And then they're going to take the contract and leave. And I think there was also an idea of potentially like robbing the people on the canal boats at some point too. But it's all fake. They're just there to get the, the contract money. Right. It's all up front. Vin is actually really smart here. She's clearly very nervous and downtrodden, but says, Cayman, everyone standing in this room is dressed up way too nicely. If you're a a nobleman on his last bit of money, you wouldn't have well-dressed servants. You'd just bring a bunch of ska. So Cayman's a dick to her. He's like, what are you babbling? And yeah, he's just being such a dick. But then he takes her advice. Yeah, he does. But he's such a jerk. Like, he pretends it's kind of his own idea. And he almost, Vin is expecting, like, a slap in the face. So, like, you understand the kind of treatment and the situation she's living in. He does end up taking her advice, though, which kind of sucks because she gets no credit for no. it. We do get some insight, though, that she's beholden to Cayman because she's essentially covering the debt that her brother left when he ran away and that she needs to, like, stay here. Right. So she's just taking anything at this point. She has no protection. Her brother's gone and Cayman considers her like a burden, but also she has nowhere else to go. So the treatment she's getting is horrible. One little blip here is that like he grabs her arm really hard and squeezes and it hurts her. And in her head, she's like, just another pain. I can deal with pain. She has this thing where a few times throughout she says like, I can deal with the pain of a beating. I can deal with this. And we find out later she's actually secretly, unbeknownst to herself, been burning pewter, which gives her like increased strength and stamina. And her luck is actually her using soothing on people to get things to go more favorably. Yes. So that's exactly why Cayman's brought her along on this job. So Cayman has his ska, his fake ska lined up behind him. Well, I guess they're technically all real ska. And then at this point, the obligator comes in. And this is who Cayman has to pretend to be a nobleman in front of, has to give House Jedi's last chance he has to make his plea to this man and get him to agree to the contracts. The obligator is definitely skeptical at first. He does not want to agree to give a contract to like a house that has no money and has fallen on hard times. Mm. But Cayman's pretty convincing. He's a good actor. And while Cayman's making his case, Vin is desperately trying to use her luck. So in addition to Cayman being charismatic and convincing... The two of them convince this man, Laird, to uh, set up a meeting again and hire them under a government contract to run canal boats. Yep. So he says he's going to take their proposal to the council and they can hopefully still agree on a, a contract overall. Chapter 2. 
We get another section written by the Lord Ruler. This one, again, talks about how his power is a heavy burden and that he no one realizes, like, does he have the power to destroy as well? Is, is he supposed to be the savior or is he going to be the world's downfall? But we now get this next section, starting with Kelsier over in Luthadel. Again, the capital of the Lord Ruler's Empire. I think we forgot to mention, but this story alternates between Vin and Kelsier's perspective. Every chapter's opposite. I never noticed that. It's interesting. I'm pretty sure it's every other. We'll keep an eye out for it, but it's Kelsier's turn now. (laughs) So he's looking out over the city, which is a great way, I think, to world build because he's just talking about, here's what the city is. So he's looking at how dirty and ash-covered and soot-stained everything is, but he's also talking about inside the city, there's these keeps. They're the keeps of the high nobility, and particularly like a high noble family, not just a regular noble family, because they're like little solitary forts or fortresses or or castles, essentially, and they're the only places in the city that have a cleared-out space around them. So they have a yard, whereas the rest of the city is cramped and dirty and jammed all together. And then he looks out over to this thing called Credic Shaw, the Hill of a Thousand Spires, which is the Lord Ruler's Palace. Which, one, great name. Two, I love the description of Credic Shaw. There's all these sharp, tall, narrow, spiky buildings, and it just seems like such a menacing place. So my theory about Credit Shaw is that it's potentially a leftover remnant of like the Lord Ruler's battle with whatever he defeated. This thing we find out his enemy is called like the Deepness. We still don't know what it is, but the architecture of Credit Shaw is so different from everything else in the world. I'm wondering if it's almost like it survived a previous age. No, almost like it could be um a picture like a meteor splatter and like all the shrapnel like shooting back up into the air. So like imagine oh. like a huge explosion happening there and they create all these like big spires and spikes in the ground. I'm not sure what they'd be made of. And then he, over the next thousand years, like carved it out into his castle. That's really cool. That's my theory. I have no actual information to back <laughs> that up. But there's a, a scene later on when Vin and Kelsier go to Credit Shot and some of the spires are so skinny, like they're not buildings. They're just like, they stick up as straight as these big spikes in the air. So, like, why would you build a spike that's not part of a building? Yeah, that's a really good point. So, that's my ideas about what it is. And Kelsier's also watching Ska working. Like, they're working everywhere all the time. Like, little little worker ants everywhere. Yep, some are removing ash from the streets. Some work in the factories, but they always are just going about their tasks with very lackluster energy, they're completely despondent and sad and beaten down. And Kelsier is approached by a man named Doxon. So he and Kelsier are dressed up in like noble pretty, pretty middle class clothing, noble birth, but they're not high middle classes. So they can sort of do what they want. You know, the guards of the city are not going to bother them. And they're just chatting. They seem like good old friends. Yeah, they definitely have history that's for sure <laughs> yeah so Doxon's asking kelsier about if he had anything to do with lord trusting's death kelsier is a classic main character of like not really giving too much away and he's like oh i suppose you could say that but yeah very a- nonchalant <laughs> he does say it was an accident 
So I'm wondering if his allomantic powers just, like, went crazy in his, like, emotion of defending this young girl. Yeah, like, fit of rage got the best of him. Right, like, just out of control. Kelsier and him are meeting because Kelsier's been talking about these, like, plans he wants to get to now that he's back, quote-unquote. We don't really yet understand where he's back from, but it's the pits of Hathson. I think he may have gone somewhere else in between then, we're not sure. Classic Dachshund just kind of like ragging on him saying, you're so foolhardy for how crazy you can be. Yeah. Not that I don't want to come along with your plans. I just forgot like how you can be like you're so reckless and bold. So they're talking about getting like this crew together. They have everyone except for somebody, a smoker. Yep. The person who can hide Alamancy, which is essential because everyone else on their crew is also an Alamancer. They have at least one well, almost all of them have one allomantic ability. Kelsier has all of them. Yes, being Mistborn gives you the ability to do all allomancy. Right, and Dachshund's actually kind of referencing this. He's like saying like, oh, I'm just going to have to get used to it. And I didn't, upon first reading it, realize what it was. Yeah, I thought it meant it like this crazy plan of his. I did too. And this is why this dialogue is good. You're right. The dialogue in this book is pretty good. It it references things that we're not 100% sure about yet. You know, if you were having you know, a conversation with somebody in real life, you wouldn't be like, hey, remember that thing we talked about? Yes, the thing where blah, blah, blah. Like, you wouldn't speak that way. You would just start talking about it. And that's what they're doing. But what he's referencing is the fact that Kelsier is now a mistborn. He was not one before his time in the pits of Hatson, And he went through this experience called snapping. And snapping is an extreme emotional event that if you have the ability to have allomantic powers, will essentially turn them on. And so Kelsier has lived his entire life up to this point as just a regular person. And then all of a sudden, as an adult, he's a mistborn. He can access the powers of all the metals. Yeah, which is awesome. So that's what Dachshund's saying it's going to take getting used to. As they're going over their plans, they agree that they do need a smoker, one character comes to Kelsier's mind is a man named Clubs. Yes. So... He's supposed to be one of the best smokers in the city, according to Kelsier. Dachshund's a little bit apprehensive about working with him because he's difficult, quote unquote. And then they also reference a man named Yeadon. It's just like a feel of like, let's get the band back together. Yeah, very Ocean's Eleven too. It's like, we're, you know, we're planning the heist. Get all like the the special operatives it's very much the vibe of, like, Kelsier finally got out and he wants to finish the job, quote-unquote, is mm-hmm. is how I'm feeling. We're putting a team together. <laughs> all like, son of a bitch, I'm in. <laughs> exactly. So just as they're talking about this job, Dachshund says we've got a few hours before the meeting, so they've set up a meeting to meet with all, you know, the gang, the crew. In this moment, he says, like, I have something that I think would be worth your time to see before the meeting. And Kelsier said that he was going to go talk to his brother, but Dachshund says, like, no, no, this is worth your time. And it shifts back to Vin. They are back at their safe house, the lair, you know, uh, Cayman's lair, the lair for Cayman, because poison. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Cayman's lair. Vin is definitely not a member of the crew in terms of friendship. Everybody else is drinking, playing, cards, hanging out. They're clearly pleased that the job is still going forward. They 100% don't have the contracts yet, but everyone in the crew is feeling pretty good. And at this point, Cayman looks at Vin and says, it's time. 
Yeah, so they are going to go speak with the Canton of Finance. She had no idea this was happening. So poor Vin is just like dragged around and never knows what's going on. Nobody tells her anything. Again, this is part of the ministry, the high government. And that includes the steel ministry that have the steel inquisitors. So between the obligators, 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 thank you. (laughs) And the steel inquisitors, this is a place where you do not want to mess up and fumble. So they really need to make sure that they get their story straight and are convincing. They're walking into the lion's den at this point. I was already getting so excited about the book at this point reading this. I was getting really nervous for Vin and this whole situation. Come to find out, like, this part of the plot isn't particularly important to the overall book, but it really sucked me in. I love the idea of, like, a heist, a double cross, these sneaky thieving plans going on. And Vin is startled not only because, like, she didn't know where they were going, but also because by Cayman going back to the Ministry of Finance right now... He's double-crossing the other thieving crew that they are working with, Theron's crew. So she's really nervous at this point. Yeah, because he's essentially screwing them over and creating a powerful enemy within Luthadel of another rival thieving gang. Right, and even Vin says, like, you're betraying Theron. She says it to Cayman, and he's, like, openly admitting it to her. Cayman says Theron expended way too many resources, so if they can take the money that they can get now and run, Theron's left with this empty deal that he doesn't have any way to back up, and he'll be screwed and caught by the ministry, so he'll take the fall. So Cayman's actually pretty conniving, despite what a jerk he is. Yeah. Poor Vin is very upset, so she tries to, like, wedge herself into a corner and just, like, get through this. And the whole time, she's constantly thinking of her brother Reen's statements of, like, anyone will betray you anyone this is the world she's brought up in this is like her mantra at this point it's the way she survives it's her whole coping mechanism they get called into the finance office but the person they're supposed to meet with Prelan laird is gone it's high Prelan arayev and just the fact that he says hi Prelan is already indicating that he's somebody higher up in the government this is looking more and more dangerous for the crew and at this point only Cayman and Vin are there. He was only allowed to bring one servant with him. So it's just the two of them. Cayman's really leaning into being a lord. He like makes Vin get him like cake and sit there while he eats it in front of her. And he's just like really greedy and it upsets me that oh, she yeah. has to take this. He's like the epitome of like the big doofus. Ugh. But he is kind of smart. Like he is double crossing Theron. Yeah. So he's scary in that sense. So poor Vin is just And he's strong and just stuck. menacing. Like her hands are tied. She is standing there wishing so desperately to be out of there because Cayman is nervous. Yeah, he's in way over his head. Yeah, he was not expecting a high Praelan. He's trying to like stay in character, being like, I'm assuming that I've been called back because you are considering my offer. And Arayev is, we learn in retrospect, essentially stalling. Because yeah. what's going on is the first Praelan that they met with the first member of the Ministry of Finance was actually trained to sense Allomancy and knew that Vin used her luck on him. And so they sent in a high Praelan at this point to try to get confirmation that that was happening. So he's stalling in order to get Vin to use her her luck, quote unquote, essentially her soothing. Of course, she's going to be using it because she doesn't realize that this 
even exist that other people can sense her power and she just wants to do everything she can to get this done and them out of here. Right, and like she's still committed to getting this deal because that will give her plenty of money and hopefully maybe her debts will be paid off, etc. So like Arayev and Cayman are going back and forth, back and forth. It feels really like quite a gamble and then all of a sudden Vin is like, all right, it's time, reaches out and uses her luck and then immediately Arayev's like, okay, you've convinced me. We'll uh, give you your advance money and we'll be all set. It feels like they got away with it. And it's so funny, like rereading this now, seeing how it's such um, a false front. Yeah, I think the line that gives it away is a happy obligator was always a bad sign. Yes. So Vin is not convinced that they got away with it. She's super nervous, but like they go out to the bursar. He signs their contract, gives them their advance money. So they've got several thousand boxings and they walk out scot-free i think the funny thing is too like when it says array of smiled it's double meaning here like you've convinced me not of their plight but that she's she's the one yes 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 instigating was soothing and it's like oh it's so clever i didn't pick up on that right because we don't have enough information yet you know having read through the book at this point you should have read only up to here you wouldn't know it's coming right Oh, man, it creates such a sense of like, okay, like, step one of the plan is done. They scammed the ministry. They scammed the other crew. Like, what's in it for our heroes now? Like, where will Vin and Kamen go next? Right. Like, will Vin finally be free? And that's what I thought was happening. We shift back to Kelsier and we find out that he's been sitting in the waiting room this whole time. (laughs) Pretending also to be a nobleman watching Vin and Kamen do their thing. Right. That's the person Doxon was talking about. And he's like... She's been soothing the obligator, and they have their eyes on her. Yep. So actually, Doxon had found out about Vin because Vin, a few months prior on one of Cayman's job, had tried to soothe Kelsier's brother. And we find out later that Kelsier's brother has the one ability to sense allomancy. So like, he put all the pieces together, figured it out, told Doxon, Doxon told Kelsier, and now they're all in on it, except for Vin, who doesn't know what she is. (laughs) (laughs) As they're leaving... They figure, like, they're going to go follow Vin and figure out what's going on. But then they are leaving and they see a steel inquisitor. And Uh. immediately, Doxon says, what's that doing here? Not even what's he or she doing here. That. And I am so excited to finally talk about these guys. They seem terrifying. Oh, and there's great fan art of them. Yes. So essentially, they're built like people, except for the fact that There's these thick metal spikes that have been pounded through their Their eyes. eyes. So it's like a flat metal disc that replaces their eyes and spikes coming out of the head of a nail. Yeah. And spikes coming out of the back of their head. It's so scary. How are they still alive? I don't know because they talk about they're not born this way. They're not like a creature created this way. Like it's a human that is transformed into this. Yeah. It's very bizarre because obviously like spikes through your head should kill you and it gives them like these weird special abilities that we don't quite understand, but they're extraordinarily powerful. They can sense. So all obligators can sense allomancy, but we don't really know the extent of the power of these steel inquisitors. They're just like clearly everyone's terrified of them. Yes. And they are very, very powerful. Kelsier takes it upon himself to distract the Steel Inquisitor. 
<laughs> I don't know how he does it. Bold gambit. Very, very, very. They're worried that Cayman's going to lead the Inquisitor back to the safe house, which is why Kelsier opts to do this, because they obviously want to go get Vin as a fellow Alamancer and get her on their crew. One line I just want to talk about that's really cool is that right before Kelsier decides to get the attention of the Steel Inquisitor, he says, let's have a chase now, you and I. And I just really, I don't know, very... uh. Bold and brash, uh, dramatic flair from Kelsier. Mm, he's got a lot of charisma. Yeah. He's a great main character. Chapter three. So the blurb this time is talking about this place called Terrace. Whoever the narrator is, the Lord Ruler, you know, the man who became the Lord Ruler says like, there's these mountains, they've got forests and snow. It's a land of green and fertility. So it's clearly very different from the world that people live in now. We know that it's not the same time or either not the same place and he's talking about the people here so it's just building a little bit of the world he says that like it's surprising that these people who live here who are mostly like herdsmen or farmers from this region also they produced like the prophecies and religions upon which the entire world now relies later we meet a character who is a terraceman this place that they're referring to they also talk about the Terrace Prophecy, which is the prophecy that like created the Lord Ruler as what we know the him. hero or whoever this hero is as this hero situation. <laughs> so this chapter, Cayman is gloating. He's counting out his coins, dropping the boxings that they just got from the government. He's really quite pleased with himself. But Vin has a terrible feeling you know they walked out with three thousand boxings i don't know how much that's worth but even walking out of somewhere with three thousand dollars is quite a theft and vin is very very nervous she goes to this person ulef who she considers the closest thing to a friend they're not really friends yeah but he's drinking she like kind of shakes on his hand he's she's like hey we have to go we have to go the guys are like not really cool about it they're like oh you're gonna go somewhere alone but she's like no like urgently like we have to go so as she does this, she's like, you know what, Ulef, just meet me out back. We're leaving. So yeah. she goes to get her things, except for she doesn't really have anything, just an earring and a piece of obsidian. So she takes the earring and puts it in her ear, and that's pretty much all she owns. She puts the obsidian in her pocket. That's all Vin's got. So she goes to leave, walks out into the main room, and is immediately attacked. Yep. Ulef ratted her out, and Cateman is furious. Right. He throws a stool to hit her in the square of the back. He's beating her up. Ulef is not helping. Nobody's helping Vin. They're just watching this happen. Poor Vin. She's just so upset. She's like, again, like, everyone will betray you. Like, Reen's voice, like, fool. Didn't you know better? Yeah, it's- You'll never have friends in this world. She- just has only one thought, which is, I'm alone. And then she's trying to convince herself that Cayman won't kill her because he needs her on the crew. Cayman is showing no mercy. He has, quote unquote, murder in his eyes. So she is probably going to get beat to death. They think that the reason she said they had to go is because that she tattled on the steel ministry about them, told the government. They think that, like, Vin was saying, I have to leave so that she could get there before the Steel Inquisitors get there. So they're 
furious. Yeah. No, he is like intent to potentially kill her right now. Right. He hits her in her head. She tastes blood on her lips. All of a sudden, she feels significantly weaker. Like her her power and her strength are drained from her. And I'm pretty sure she's run out of pewter at this point. I think she'd been subconsciously burning pewter and it's gone now. And that's what she'd been using in defense in moments like these to give herself a little bit of an edge. Thankfully, at the same moment, someone comes bursting into their hideout. He's got a nobleman's suit on. So we all know it's Kelsier here to save the day, here to make a big old entrance. And it is great. And he looks furious Mm -hmm. and i love a big entrance of just like anger like bursting through the door it's such a fun theatrical moment either reading or on tv or movie but like just someone like banging open a door and like everyone getting scared immediately is like they're here to swing the justice hammer and i love it i'm here for it oh yeah it's great it is so good so cayman's obviously like who are you everyone now thinks this is somebody sent by the obligators or the ministry so there's chaos you're right and, and then all of a sudden this man just pushes Cayman like through the air without even touching him like he just flies off of Vin so I had no idea what was happening at this point right because we didn't know enough about Alamancy or Alamantic abilities to uh, understand what was happening so I was like w- does he have telekinesis <laughs> like I was so confused <laughs> like what's first. going on I reread that line a few times to be like no he definitely just like magic pushed him somehow made him fly across the room. Yeah. And then Vin thinks he's using luck on everyone, but doesn't understand how he's doing it on so many people at once because everyone else is just sitting there stunned looking. Nobody's doing anything. Mm. Even Vin herself gets this feeling of like wondering why she's felt so worried. She does understand that like this man also has quote unquote luck or, you know, as we know it, allomancy. Yes. And Vin recognizes them. So Doxon pops in and Vin realizes that she saw them at the Canton of Finance in the waiting room. So Vin is a pretty astute character. Yes, she's paying attention. She definitely keeps her street smarts. For sure. It was hard to get a good read on her because she was just in survival mode up to this point. When you're in survival mode and real survival mode, like in terms of like safety, but also like hunger and nutrients and sleep and everything like you don't have time to have a personality at that point like she's just trying to live as we go on like we get to know more and more and more of Vin's character and i think she's a a really interesting main character but at this moment kelsier has burst in cayman says it's the survivor of hathson so he recognizes kelsier yeah as this legendary figure he even calls him master kelsier like this is a rare honor oh i didn't even realize that Mm. Ooh. And Kelsier's a hoot. He just goes, you know, I'm not really interested in listening to you. <laughs> and then throws Cayman across the room again. Kelsier says, oh, all of you know who I am? Well, guess what? I just saved all your lives. There was a Steel Inquisitor coming to find you. I got them away from you. I dealt with him, quote unquote. And now I require payment for this service I have done to you. Yeah, you all owe me a great debt. They try to give him the money that Cayman got from the ministry, the 3,000 boxings, but that is not enough to satisfy Kelsier. What he tells them is that I will be taking all of your money and Cayman is going to be relieved of his duties to this gang. As well as the gang should deal with him, quote unquote. 
So this new boy, Milev, becomes the leader of the crew. Kelsier then also asks them all to leave so that he can use their shop for his meeting. Initially, he was going to use Clubs' shop, this character they mentioned earlier, but Dachshund points out that it's not a neutral location, and so they should do it here, especially now that they have this you know moment where they can essentially demand anything. So everyone leaves except for Vin. Kelsier demands that she stays there. I don't know if he knows her name from Dachshund. Yeah, it's hard to figure out how he knows who she is, other than, obviously, what Dachshund has found out about her. Right, but the the power of like knowing who someone is when they don't know who you are. The mystique. It definitely adds to Kelsier's... Intrigue? Yeah, that's the word yeah. I was looking for. <laughs> so as everyone's leaving... They agree to take Cayman and make him a beggar. We will find out Cayman's fate eventually down the line. I don't want to spoil it just yet. No, just desserts, though. But yeah, they do make him a beggar. And then other stuff happens to him as well. <laughs> and then on top of that, Kelsier says, oh, there's two dead ministry spies in the alleyway behind your shop. Not only is proof that we did help you, but also you guys need to get rid of the bodies. Like, I'm not taking care of that. Yeah. So everybody is gone, and poor Vin is alone with these two guys, and she thinks that Kelsier is, like, the most impressive man she's ever seen, but impressive in sort of an intimidating way. Right, or she thinks to herself, he claims to have killed an Inquisitor, he used luck, I have to stay, if just long enough to find out what he knows. Yeah, so like we were saying, Vin has been in survival mode, and so her whole angle on this situation is like, that man's powerful. I need to learn also how to be powerful because that's my only ticket to survival in life. This whole interaction she has with them, her motive is to just learn their secrets, learn about like luck and these powers he has, and then get out. Dachshund and Kelsey are definitely really nice to her. Like Dachshund offers her a handkerchief for her face. She's very distrusting, which is no surprise because of how she's been treated her whole life and how women are treated in this world. And then... <laughs> They just rummage through the bar, too, and help themselves to beer and wine and just making themselves really comfortable. comfortable. Settling in. And as they're making their drinks, they're offering Vin wine, and she does not want anything. She is very distrustful at this moment. She's not even sitting near them. Right. She says she won't drink anything that, like, she hadn't made herself. She's very, very nervous here. Vin is also really cut to the chase kind of character, and I like this about her. I think she's very... She's pragmatic. I like it. Yeah, and very bold sometimes. So, like, they're sitting there kind of silently, not knowing what to say, and she just goes, who are you? And so, <laughs> Kelsey is like, all right, well, there goes my air of mystery, which mm -hmm. I think is hilarious, because you and I definitely noticed that he had been trying to create this aura about himself. Yeah, the mysterious survivor of Hathson, the legend, who is this man? Right, like he's got these powers, he's got these scars, like what's his story? But he just introduces himself. He says his name is Kelsier and he runs a thieving crew, but his thieving crew is completely different. I love that they have this little discussion about like what thieves are in this world. Like they're talking about like, oh, we're scavengers, we're not predators, like we're not preying upon people. Yeah. We're just picking up like the excess that the nobility have and taking it for ourselves and also probably distributing it among other ska as well. Kelsier says like, all right, you know, we're, we're thieves, we're scavengers too, but like we are of a higher caliber. Yes. 
Vin asks if they're noblemen. <laughs> Kelsey is like, oh, no, no, definitely not. Or yes. at least not full-blooded ones, which is alluding to the fact that that's how he got his alimantic abilities that the ska aren't supposed to have and kelsey even says like half breeds like you and vin was shocked she's like how do you know i love this yes so a little bit of a background of vin's life too right because we learn later on that her father's alive and one of the nobility yeah i think he's an obligator himself isn't Mm -hmm. he yeah so definitely a dangerous position for vin to be in yes she notices that Milev called the mistings, and she asks about that. So she is very observant and, and direct, and she's getting the answers that she wants, so good for her. Kelsier says that they are called mistings, but neither him nor Doxon are technically mistings, but they associate with them quite often. Yep. Then we learn a little bit more about, like, Alamancy, which you and I have talked about already. We We gave away the... Surprise. <laughs> yes, where Vin's luck is actually soothing and she was using it to make scams go better, to make people less suspicious or threatening. It's revealed that Alamancy is held only by, theoretically, the nobility given to them by the Lord Ruler for their loyalty. So I'm interested in learning a little bit more about that, about how he actually like gave them these powers. Right. And Kelsier also reveals that because... Vin used Alamancy on Obligator. Obligator. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) He's not a potato. A potato (laughs) Obligator. Because she used uh, soothing on him, they're trained to recognize when their emotions are being pushed or pulled on. And so that's what caused the downfall. Yeah, this is how the Steel Ministry was after them and how Kelsier, thankfully got in the middle of it and saved her. It's also revealed that like one misting is as as dangerous enough to kill an entire thieving crew. So people know about them. They're sort of like these legendary figures. Like people aren't really 100% sure if they exist or not, but their powers are definitely built up in like local lore and legend. Yes. Kelsier passes Vin a vial with two of the eight alimentic metals and Asks her to drink the vial, and she is, again, so... Skeptical. Yes. She makes him take a sip of it first. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh yeah, make sure you shake it up so you get all of whatever that sediment is at the bottom. Right. After some coercion, she decides to drink it. And doesn't feel any different at first. No. Ugh, I love this. She reaches inside herself and feels like her luck, and... She says it was there like a massive golden hoard. Yes. So she's always had this ability, but it's been like so, so, so limited. She's only been able to pick up trace metals from probably drinking water and eating utensils, but she's never like ingested them for the sake of alamancy. And so now she feels like she has this unlimited wealth of them. And Kelsier knows she has the luck ability. So he's like, okay, go ahead, try and use it. And she is pretty happy to because she's got a lot yeah. stored up in there now. And Kelsier feels it, so he's like, okay, great, good. Time for the real test. Can you go the other way? Instead of soothing my emotions, can you, like, riot me up? Yeah. And Vin has never done this before. She didn't realize that there were multiple ways you could use luck, quote-unquote. You and I know this is actually now using two different metals. Right. So she reaches inside herself and feels that there's, like, two different sources of power. What she originally thought was, like, one big 
power source is actually like different components that she can use in different ways. Yeah. So she does it. It's pretty anticlimactic, but Kelsey's like, that's it. She did it. Right. And she has no idea like what it is she's proven. And I love this because Doxin, again, is like referencing things that we don't quite understand yet, which adds a lot for me when I'm reading. I'm like, I need to know what they're talking about. It creates so much more uh, intrigue. Right. So I just like, I have to keep reading at this point. Yeah. Very clever writing. So he says like, it'll be weird to have two of them on the crew. And Vin's like, two what? This is where we learn what Mistings versus Mistborn are. And Mistings have one of the eight powers mistborn have all of them and it is extraordinarily rare it's supposed to be limited to the nobility so vin does reveal that she had a noble father he's a high oh a high pralin in the steel ministry oh so he's really up there he's really up there too yeah she'd um been pointed out to her once by reen when they were young and that's how she got this ability so to have two ska misting mistborn sorry on yeah. one crew is huge and i love the way that kelsier describes this vin is overwhelmed in this moment like she's heard stories and legends but like this is very much like a you're a wizard harry kind of moment oh yeah <laughs> and like how can you not be stoked but like wh- what do you even do like you didn't even think these things were real and all of a sudden you are one of them that's a lot to sink in mm. that's a lot a lot to take in yeah because essentially her whole life has just been surviving day after day and trying to keep her head down stay invisible don't get killed. And now he's telling her, you have access to so much power, and I'm going to present you with an opportunity to learn and grow with me. Power that like most high noble people don't even have. If you're a high noble, you maybe have one. A lot of them have none. He says it, if she'd been an aristocrat, it would have made her one of the most powerful and dangerous and influential people in the final empire. And then the best like get yes. big, get excited line, he's like, oh, ho, ho, but you aren't an aristocrat. So instead of being like, oh, you're not an aristocrat, that sucks. He's like, you're not noble, so none of the world's rules now apply to you. You can do whatever you want, and you are so powerful. Yeah, that makes you even more deadly and powerful because you don't have to play by their rules. I love it. It's great. So that brings us to the end of episode one. There was so much to unpack in there. I'm sure we missed some things that will they'll come up later in other episodes but i think we're off to a really good start i loved ending on this because like it just opens up a whole world for vin and we at this point don't really know where the book is going to be going the first time we read it we know coming up since you and i are ahead that there's a whole crew of other mistings so they make this like perfect thieving crew and then kelsier reveals this big old bombshell of a plot that he's been working on So that will be what we talk about next time. I'm just really glad we're reading this for season three. It's a good shakeup from Kingkiller Chronicles, but it's still a really fun and really well-known and well-loved fantasy book that somehow you and I just haven't read before. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so glad that this is a new experience for us and I love dissecting it and sharing it with you all. Yes, I've read some of Brandon Sanderson's standalone stuff, but I haven't read this or Way of Kings, which is his other big, big trilogy. So this has been really fun. I would love to thank my sister, Atlas, who was actually on our last mini series for buying this book for me for my birthday, because I'm really into it. And I'm so excited to keep going with everyone. Yes. Yeah, so until next time, listeners, happy reading. 
Thanks, listeners. If you're looking for more, check us out at fantasticbookspod.com, where we have book reviews, reading list suggestions, merch, and you can even send us a message. Or find us on Facebook and Instagram at Fantastic Books Pod. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks. Thanks. Golden Rise Media. 